when humankind has been through these kinds of major system changes before, it's usually been because of war or some unexpected and, and often tragic event. So this time there's an opportunity to do it differently, to plan the system change, to buffer the negative consequences and help the people who will suffer in it. So there's a great opportunity and a great responsibility to try to do that well. Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast, the podcast for sustainable, compassionate leadership. You just heard Heather Graby. She's a political scientist and director of the Open Society European Policy Institute, the EU policy arm of the Open Society Foundation. Heather has taught at the London School of Economics, gave a TED Talk on the importance of critical thinking and mindful engagement with post-truth politics and has written recently on how climate change is affecting the quality of democracy and economic and social justice. Together with her, we will explore the question, what new social contract do we need for a transition to sustainability? I'm your host, Tom Weimann, and I'm glad that you're with us to discover your inner green deal. Heather and I recorded our conversation in August of 2021 when the coverage of a horrible wildfire season all around the Mediterranean was dominating the news outlets. We started our conversation with the question, what led Heather to become interested in political science in the first place? I've always been very curious about the world around me and about current affairs and trying to understand what's going on. Why are things happening the way they are? And I remember growing up during the Cold War, really trying to get my head around the fact that there were these two completely different systems on the planet. In fact, there were more than that at the time, but I was only aware of two, which were existing side by side and were full of human beings trying to live their lives and fulfill their ambitions. And yet there was this constant tension and competition between them. And it, that didn't really seem quite logical to me. Why should there be such tension and competition? And so I was very motivated to understand uh, how politics works and especially how geopolitics works. And then I came of age politically with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 when I was still at university and the opening up of Central and Eastern Europe. I was very fascinated by that and studied it for a long time as an, as an academic, but also on the ground working in, in the countries that were undergoing the post-communist transition and tracking and monitoring and analyzing their progress towards EU membership as, as the seal of what seemed like the end of the transition at the time. And that I found very motivating to see how people could work towards a goal that would benefit their children and give their country a better future. And it remains an important motivation today. And I'll just never forget that moment when the whole system changed and things came out for the better. As Heather has dedicated years of her time and work for the greater good of open and just societies, I asked her on the role of values and principles, like human rights and justice, and how it might have changed over the course of her research. I mean, certainly over the course of my career, the popularity of human rights, justice and democracy as causes has declined as radical right populism has grown, as people have become less convinced about the liberal international order. And so I see the way that it's really tempting 
simply become cynical and and to say, well, look, people are just not principled. They're no longer um, concerned with these values. Therefore, these values don't have the value that they did. When, of course, they do, they're still absolutely fundamental. The question is how to pursue them in a new way and make them just as relevant for new generations who are much more concerned about the digital world, for example, the online world, where certainly values, rights, justice really matter, and it hugely affects democracy. Or in the context of climate change, it's very important to hold on to the opportunities and and not simply become blasé about the whole thing. Cynicism can often be a symptom of protecting us from being overwhelmed and from being hurt too much when we face reality. However, we cannot afford to withdraw, avoiding awareness of the reality and the challenges we are facing by getting cynical. So what does help to stay in touch and be touched by what is around us? It's Mindfulness is clearly really key to um, maintaining one's groundedness and feeling in touch with reality. Politics is often constructed of fantasies and it's a big game and you can become very caught up in the game and, and feel that every twist and turn of the game really matters when actually many of the, the short-term things that are going on just turn out to be a storm in a teacup. They just turn out to be the froth on the top of the wave and you need to look at where is the wave going. And I think mindfulness helps greatly to cultivate a longer-term view to cultivate the capacity to ride the waves and to maintain a sense of equilibrium, but also to stay in touch with reality when things are going badly wrong and not to be over-optimistic and, and to be real with yourself and, and with your colleagues and allies about, um, I think we need to find a, a new approach, a different way of looking at things. And that helps to take the ego out of it too, because politics is also full of egos. And so having a more grounded perspective oneself makes it easier both to kind of see longer term, but also to deal with the inevitable ups and downs and, and the ego-ridden games that get played around it. So what is the role of values within current politics then? With decades of perspective on the political world, I wondered what Heather feels is really important, especially today. What I see happening over time is that um, over the course of their careers, people often begin to pay lip service to values that they really did believe in at the start of their careers. And they become either very angry, even outraged about uh, the way that these values are not always adhered to in decisions and in politics, but also they can become just then very cynical about the values themselves. Um, But then in addition to that, of course, we've now come to the end of a 30-year period of the triumph of liberal, liberal values. So that's been a massive secular change, not just a cyclical change, but a secular change, where the EU has sometimes in recent years seemed like the only international actor that still cared about liberal values and about multilateralism. Hopefully, the US will provide some bolstering now, though it's a pretty grim situation we're in at the moment. But what I think is really important in all of this is when you're trying to stand up for values and to make them relevant and still something that people can feel affects their own daily lives, is that they see real cases, that it doesn't just remain abstract legal principles and statements on paper, but how they actually affect individual cases and stories of people who are really affected by them. 
Heather has given a remarkable TED Talk on the importance of critical thinking and how our brain might lose its ability to think long-term while feeling threatened. Given that we're seeing more and more manifestations of climate change around, like the wildfires around the Mediterranean in summer of 2021, we focused on the role of the brain on red alert for our societies and the transformation ahead. Well, the human mind is, is an incredible construction that's able to deal with emergencies to an extraordinary degree and to be very rapidly calculating what needs to happen next. But of course, in that state of mind, it's a particular system in the brain that when it's in that state of high alert, it's focused on the task at hand. It's focused on whatever is creating fear in the mind. And then it loses perspective. Because when you're faced with an existential threat, you need 100% of your attention fixed on the existential threat, getting away from it. But when people's minds stay in that state, they become incapable of thinking about all the other things that need to be done and, and thinking about creative solutions or indeed the perspective of other people and other interests and concerns in a situation. And the concern I have is that after a year and a half of pandemic and a decade of increasing alerts about all kinds of things, about the economy, with the financial crisis that we had in Europe after 2008, and then with various other crises, that people are now focused on quite short-term issues. And what the IPCCC report was very clear about is we've got to think over the next couple of decades because we've got very little time left to prevent planetary disaster. Very little time left indeed. And that means we've got to be able to think about more than just... <laughs> although it sounds big, but more than just COVID, economic recovery, coping with the existing problems, because a lot more are coming. COVID might just be the rehearsal for climate change. Climate change will bring a series of um, crises on the scale of COVID. And so now is the time to start thinking about how to prevent those crises from happening by taking very rapid and much more radical action to prevent warming of the planet, but also loss of, di of biodiversity and, and other important goals. And also to start thinking creatively, to start thinking creatively about what kind of society do we want to live in? What kind of economy would in fact be sustainable? The, the research that we've done shows that many Europeans believe that a few add-on measures will be enough. It'll be enough just to, to you know, change our lifestyles a little bit and then everything will continue as before. But actually, that won't be. We're going to have to adjust to quite massive climate change. And we're beginning to see that because of the, looking at the wildfires this summer in the Mediterranean, but also the floods, of course, in Northern Europe, in Germany and in Belgium, where I live, there have been really terrible situations. Um, that could become a regular occurrence. That could, this is just the first of many summers when we'll have that kind of extreme and unusual weather patterns. So we need to start working out how to be prepared for that and how to prevent the, 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 that kind of damage. But also, How are we going to change to a sustainable system where this planetary damage um, stops and even is reversed? How do we get to a situation where we actually start to not just to save nature, but to nurture nature, to help it to regrow, to, to bring it back into balance? And I, that's where we need a mindset that is much more creative much more perceptive, much more caring and empathetic, and not only think about the immediate scary thing that politicians are shouting at us about. While our democracies negotiate the interests of so many different parties, trying to navigate a pathway towards sustainability, 
It is also about balancing the freedom of individuals with how that kind of freedom limits others in their own freedom and their chances. Heather has a remarkable reflection on that argument of freedom. The political battle that's now emerging over climate action and the system change to sustainability is being framed by quite a lot of political actors in terms of freedoms. And you hear parties like, for example, Alternativa für Deutschland in the German federal election campaign claiming that the Greens want to take away your freedoms. They want to stop you from driving a car and eating meat and heating your house with your gas-fired boiler and flying for your holidays. And instead, they want to bring in more austerity and uh, a much more restricted lifestyle. Now, this isn't in fact true. And I've noticed how the German Greens have started pushing back on that now in the campaign. In early August, they began really arguing that, no, this is about future liberties. It's about having choices, because if climate change goes ahead unabated, unmitigated, we'll have many fewer choices because we'll just have rising temperatures and sea levels and horrendous implications which limit our choices. And of course, the Bundesverfassungsgericht, the German Constitutional Court, earlier this year, made this argument very powerfully, arguing that the German climate law must not limit the freedoms of future ge generations of Germans in favor of the freedoms of Germans now. So this freedoms argument is extremely important. It's important as a legal principle, because if you take into account the freedoms of future generations, then you get a very different set of priorities and in policy from just thinking about the interests and the votes of, of the people who live now. So it matters in legal terms and it matters in political terms. And it's also very important in thinking about the fact that all humans will be affected by this. This isn't just the freedoms of one country or another. They have a, There's a direct trade-off between the freedoms of Americans and Europeans to continue driving internal combustion engine vehicles and the loss of freedom that's already happening in Africa, for example, of people who have lost their, their farming land to drought or indeed to flood. So the, the damage that's already been caused has already led to a loss of freedoms. But of course, it's very appealing for populist parties to come up with a freedoms argument that makes it sound as if the future um, on our planet is just one of austerity. And that's also not true because, in fact, uh, you can have a sustainable economy in which people enjoy great prosperity and they're also able to walk in the woods which have not been burned down or flooded. They're also able to enjoy clean air in cities that have less pollution than now. They also have the freedom to pursue a future in their country, which might otherwise be, be flooded. Think of the Netherlands, for example, and, and have most of its land not be usable, for example, for farming. They have the freedom to continue to have food supplies and clean water. So this freedoms argument actually needs to be taken to its logical conclusion. If you want to continue driving your car, eating meat, flying, changing absolutely nothing in your current lifestyle in Europe, then you are limiting the freedom of your own children and grandchildren to enjoy a, a lower quality of life even uh, than the one you have now. And you're certainly depriving a lot of other people on the planet of freedom. But of course, very few politicians are prepared to make that case. And I think they need to do so. And these notions of intergenerational justice and intercontinental justice need to come into play in climate justice. Because What, what people in one country do directly and immediately affects what happens to other people. Some of our highest courts bear witness that by our actions, we are already right now limiting the freedom of our children and future generations to come. 
The scale of change ahead seems tremendous. Given Heather's background in researching the changes of political landscapes after 1989, I wondered how that change could be compared to the system change which is likely ahead of us. The climate transition is going to be 1989 on a global scale. That's a huge thing to do. It was already uh, a major achievement to bring about system change in a peaceful way with little bloodshed and on the whole bringing societies, the whole of society to a very different system and indeed a different set of um, policies, ways of doing politics, ways of daily life. And it was not a perfect transition after 89. By any means, there was too little attention to inequality, to especially gender equality and to vulnerable groups like the Roma who, who were just basically ignored in it. But it was still a quite remarkable historical achievement, which we hadn't really seen the like of before as a peaceful change. Now, climate is going to require that depth and that extent of very fundamental system change, of changing the whole economic system to renewable energy, but also to much more reuse, a circular economy, respect for protection of nature being a fundamental principle rather than just an add-on that gets um, stuck in agreements or, or in policies at the last minute. And it's going to require changes to lifestyles that people are not prepared for. Now, when with 1989, that was greatly helped by the fact that there was an already existing society and economic model that political leaders could point to and could say, look, this can work. Yes, it's scary that we're going to privatize industry, that we're going to no longer control prices, that we're going to... Um, move to a market economy. But look, just there over the Berlin Wall, you can see it functioning in West Germany. Look, you can see it, it, it's happening all over Europe and in the United States, and people are, are prosperous as well as free. And that provided a great deal of inspiration. Whereas this time around, we don't have a model that anybody can point to of a fully sustainable economy, a fully sustainable circular economy and a society that has adjusted successfully to a very to a different way of living. There are some that are doing better than others, for sure, but there's no nothing really to point to as this is what we're moving towards. And that's very important because of the timelines that people think in. It's going to be really difficult to make the transition happen at a, at a speed where people can see that their lives will get better. It's not just about losing parts of life that, that you, you might like or prefer now because you'll get a better alternative later. You won't be able to see that happening fast enough if there isn't economic shift and if politicians don't provide very clear guidance. So I think that's another big lesson from 1989. It's very important that the changes bring interim benefits and that people can see that sacrifices they make in the short term will lead to a better life in the longer term. There needs to be some vision here. And it's harder to provide vision now than it was after 1989. So what is the role of vision? How can we provide a positive idea of a future where it is much more about a new kind of abundance and sustainability and not about losing freedom or economic prosperity. Now we have an opportunity. We know that climate, the climate transition is going to require certain measures, right? There's now pretty good consensus about some of the basics of how to move to a circular and sustainable economy. This is a, a really important moment for 
the political elite, which benefited quite massively from globalization, indeed, of course, the economic elite, to come up with some kind of new social contract to say to especially the poorest and most vulnerable in society who suffered from globalization and, and who are already suffering from climate change. These are the people who have fewer means, fewer resources to change their own lives and, and circumstances in order to cope with climate change. This is the moment when political and economic elites need to present a really serious social contract and say, okay, this time around, we're going to do it well. We're going to do it fairly. Everybody needs to play their part because individual behavioral change matters uh, for the climate transition. But there will be a social safety net. There will be opportunities for retraining in new industries. There will be possibilities for education throughout life, for example. There will also be funds available, seed capital and, and other ways of starting up new green businesses that are sustainable. And the old subsidies to polluting industries will no longer be available from the public purse. This can be planned now. And it shouldn't just be the first losers who get compensated, for example, coal miners. It needs to be thinking there's a need for thinking across the whole time frame of this major transition and thinking about how five years down the road, 10 years down the road, different parts of society will be affected. There needs to be a really fundamental social contract so that people can see, I'm not going to lose out again, like I did the last time. My children will live better. And therefore, it's really worth it. So the Positive transition needs a social contract to underpin it so that gender justice, racial justice and economic inclusion can be built in from the start. Heather points out the chance and also the necessity for our societies to make this a just and fair transition and learn from the lessons of globalization. At the same time, this transition might be one of the fastest adaptions our societies ever had to go through. What do we need to be able to cope with this speed of change? The pace of change is going to be enormous and it needs to be fast. It needs to be a lot faster than what's happened so far because we've already used up 86% of, of the the planetary carbon budget. So we've got to move on this really quickly. And the only way you can persuade people to move quickly is by giving them reassurances about the state looking after them. Now, COVID has already brought a fundamental reassessing of the role of the state. People have accepted during COVID the state imposing restrictions on their civil liberties because that needed to happen in the short term to con constrain the epidemic. Um, And it's important that emergency powers aren't overused. But people have accepted quite major impositions by the state. The reason why they've accepted that is because they've seen it was necessary for public health and that lives would be saved for that. And politicians need to be very careful not to abuse their trust by overstepping the use of the powers of the state. But if that if they could get that, that right this time around with climate change and make sure that there's a climate transition where the state really does take care of people in an effective way and a very consistent direction of policy, then there's an opportunity for a rebuilding of public trust in the state and, and in the political classes. We need some quite visionary leadership to say, look, this is where we're heading. Um, here is what's going to be required. And here are the safety nets that we're going to provide for this. And the state will need to impose restrictions in some areas and, and introduce new laws. For example, there's no question new laws and regulations will be needed. But this is the future we're going to end up with. And it's that vision that is still really lacking, I think, and, and which needs working on now. Coming back to the notion of being a citizen, making it relate to our individual lives, Heather and I reflected on the quote of former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. 
You're never too young to lead and never too old to learn. So what is it that we can learn? And how can everybody of us lead that change from next week on? There's a lot that individuals can do in terms of living more sustainably. And in fact, if all of us just cut our own individual carbon emissions by 20%, that would have a dramatic impact. I'm impressed by a project led by the Finnish research agency Citra, where they have a questionnaire that more than one in five Finns have taken, where you answer a few questions about your lifestyle And the program will tell you where you could make the biggest impact in terms of reducing your own carbon footprint and improving your own environmental impact. That kind of thing needs to be very widely available because at the moment, our research shows that most Europeans are not very aware of what would be the most significant things that they could do as a personal contribution. People are aware of recycling. They're happy to do more recycling. They're even enthusiastic about it. They're much less clear about the role of diet, the role of modes of transport, the importance of um, how they, they heat their houses and indeed cool them in the summer, that's much less known. And it needs to be really easily available to people so that they can make their own individual choices. We come back to this whole question of freedoms. They can be free to choose how to reduce their carbon emissions in lots of ways. And then it's not just a, they won't just experience the climate transition as a series of don'ts and restrictive measures, but as a series of choices that they themselves can make. So I think that the, the Citra questionnaire should be really widely available and should be tailored, in fact, to, to more local circumstances. Um, Plus, of course, there needs to be the right incentive set. You know, governments have got to set incentives where people have an economic reason that they can afford to uh, invest in renewables for their own energy needs and to make sure that there can be a fair energy transition, um, but also where they can make choices about, for example, um, how far their electronic devices are recyclable or uh, how much energy they use. At the moment, we're locked into a system where consumers and citizens lack choices of this kind. I would love to keep the same phone forever. I don't want to change it. I would rather just uh, repair it. But I find myself locked into a, a cycle set up by the manufacturer of my phone, whereby I have to buy a new phone every few years. I try and make it extend for as long as possible, but it's very hard certainly to get to five years of having the same phone because of the constant changes that make it need more battery life, we need more storage space, and of course, more energy consumption. So there are incentives like that where there does need to be regulation. And also, of course, there needs to be voluntary reaction by business so that consumers can choose to be more sustainable and they're not locked into these unsustainable business practices and, and market dynamics. So these are all things that need to come quite fast so that, in fact, the power of individual motivation, which is high, in fact, most Europeans actually really want urgent action on climate and they're prepared to do quite a bit to change their own lifestyles, to, to save the planet and, and to have a habit earth in the future. They need to be given much more empowerment and resources uh, in terms of information, but also in, in terms of financial incentives to take up those choices. I really like this mind shift, which could lie beneath the empowerment which Heather is describing. From being passively a part of a problem to actively being part of the solution. Yes, and people like being part of solutions. 
and they're very prepared to take action. We're not in a situation of a lumpen proletariat that's incapable of making choices and must have things imposed on it of, you know, of the, the sort of authoritarian fantasy. No, in fact, what we have is intelligent, educated citizens who are capable of taking action if they have a clear sense of why it's needed and the direction in which their society, their economy is headed, and they have the, the means of making those choices in terms of information and resources. And so I think it, the ultimate respect to show to voters, consumers, citizens is, is to unlock their human capacities for adaptation, for empathy, for, for playing their part, to, playing a positive role in the climate transition. And I think there are a lot of politicians who've become so cynical and, and tired in politics that they no longer believe that citizens are capable of doing that. And yet it's very obviously there. It's certainly there in the younger generations where the under 25s are prepared to take very radical action. But it's also the case in older generations. Many people are concerned about what's going to happen to their grandchildren. They're concerned about even what's just going to happen to themselves in the next 20 years. So unlock that motivation by giving the pe people the power to take their own action in their own hands. When we were reflecting even deeper on the empowerment of citizens, Heather felt it was important to point out that this needs to include everybody. And fairness also has different dimensions. The fair transition has become a slogan. And it's important because if the climate transition isn't fair, it's not going to happen because so many people in so many different societies need to take action that it needs to be evidently fair in order to give them the incentive to do that. But it's, it does have many dimensions, and it's important to think about the different dimensions. There's fairness within societies, where climate justice within a society ensures that everybody can benefit from the climate transition, even if they are, for example, Roma and haven't benefited from globalization in the past. It also needs to be fair, of course, for women and for various marginalized groups who haven't benefited previously either. There are two other big dimensions of fairness. One is intercontinental um, justice and ensuring that the global south is not left behind um, by the global north developing beautiful clean cities and green islands in rich countries while the rest of the earth suffers the worst effects of, of climate change and are cut out from the low-carbon technology and, and goods and services which are needed. Um, so this global north-south justice that's really important. And then the third, the third dimension is over time. It's the intergenerational fairness that needs to be there because what we do now and what we fail to do now will have a direct and immediate impact on future generations. They don't have a voice in our political systems. They have no representation. We still have democracies which are based on individual nation states, so that's a problem for the global justice. But it's also a problem that it's only those people who are living now and are of voting age who have a say. Who speaks for future generations? Now, there are some countries that have developed an ombudsman or another representative of future generations, but that's really important because the people who will thank us most for the investments we make now are those who we can't even imagine what they will look like or, or sound like because uh, they haven't yet been born. But their perspectives need to come in. And that's also a great way of motivating people to make this climate change, because this is going to be for their immediate descendants. So the concept of the good ancestor, of somebody who thinks about the interests not just of, of him or herself, but also of those who are yet to come. That's something we should all aspire to be. To aspire to be a good ancestor, 
being compassionate with future living beings who you might never even meet? How can we include this long-term perspective right now more into our actions, decisions and policy making? Well, anthropologists would tell you that there are plenty of societies which have thought longer term than our current one, which is focused on four-year electoral cycles and quarterly profits of, of the corporate cycle. But in fact, there are, are plenty of societies which have, have worshipped ancestors and um, plenty which um, still revere those who've gone before us. And we need to cultivate a culture of thinking longer term about the investments that I make now in my life now. Who are they going to benefit? And how are they actually going to benefit the things I care about? You know, planting a tree You might see the tree flourish in a few years, making an investment in a major change in infrastructure. You might only see a return on that investment in 10 years. But now with climate, we need to make investments for 50 years or 100 years. Now, of course, there are plenty of those who have done that before. If you think about um, the, the great charitable foundations set up by the Quaker families in the Midlands of the UK from the 18th century onwards. They were thinking longer term and their legacy has really been borne out by um, the, the way in which they looked after their workers and, and built houses for them, but also the, the schemes that they set up providing for, for the sick and, and for the elderly, for example. If you think about the, the way that many societies have planted forests or attempted to repair nature, these are also investments for the future. And, and feeling a sense of fulfillment from that is the key thing. Um, that in our kind of instant gratification culture that we now have, it's not actually very satisfying. That's why so many people during COVID have reassessed their lives and, and have started thinking differently about how they want to connect with nature and move to the countryside and, and live differently. And in fact, people can definitely be happier by thinking longer term because it also means that instant gratification is not needed in order to feel satisfied by the choices you've made and the investments you've made. So it's perhaps the ultimate antidote to the digital always-on culture where we expect to buy something online and have it delivered tomorrow and we expect to shout about something on an online forum and get the, res get the responses from hundreds of people immediately. It's very different when you think quite deliberately, I'm going to do this thing that's costly to me now so that somebody in 50 years whom I might ne never even meet will benefit from it and will be grateful for having it. That's a very different mindset, but it's one that can actually be very satisfying. And that's something we can now cultivate. To me, this felt like a lovely wrap up. So I had to add that we should start and expand cultivating this. Yes, indeed. Let's cultivate it. <laughs> and with that, I expressed my gratitude and pleasure to have Heather on the show. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure for me. I feel that Heather could really help us to connect the dots. With all her knowledge and experience on political systems and the change of our societies after 1989, her outlook on the change ahead is grounded in decades of research and personal insights from within the EU. We know how to prepare how to make it fair, and how to include citizens with a positive vision of a future where we preserve the freedom of future generations. So for this week, I invite you to contemplate together with me on these questions. How can I start to prepare for the change ahead so my brain will not go on red alert? How can I be part of the solution instead of feeling as part of the problem? What role do mindfulness and compassion play in my life 
and how can they help me not to get cynical but actually stay in touch and be touched by what I see around myself. In the upcoming episode, we will be welcoming Matt Scott. Matt was with the Bank of England, holds the Stanford MBA and is Senior Director at Willis Towers Watson's Climate and Resilience Hub, where he helps to manage risk and navigate opportunities of a low-carbon, resilient economy. Together with him, we will explore the changing risk landscape due to climate change and the role of financial systems in moving towards a sustainable economy. If you would like to start a dialogue or support the Inner Green Deal, please reach out to us via the show notes. Thank you for being with us on the journey to an Inner Green Deal. Not just to save nature, but to nurture nature, to help it to regrow, to, to bring it back into balance. And I, that's where we need a mindset that is much more creative, much more perceptive, much more caring and empathetic 